I guess you could say that um, we had no desire to be a part of this club, but we are. And uh, so God's grace is sufficient. We're grateful for that. And uh, we're learning through the process. So um, I want to do two things with you tonight. One, I just came back from India about a month ago, and uh, I'd like to share a little bit about um, something that happened there, and then I want to preach. And uh, so I always look forward to coming and speaking on Good Friday. Uh, that's a highlight of, of my year, and, and now I get to be here again with you folks. So thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see if, uh, see if this works here. It, um, it started out pretty simple, uh, what was going to happen. Um, it started out simple, as I said, and all it took was some wood, stacking wood, and a bike. Okay, not that bike. Uh, there, that's the bike, uh, which is pretty old. Mine is, and, and my wife's is a retro bike. And I started thinking about uh, the fact that um, transportation is such a struggle uh, over in India. Now, they have various means of transportation, of course, walking, uh, putting one foot in front of the other. Obviously, anybody can do that. And that's all most people have. Um, Motorcycles are, uh, are huge over in India. And you can put your entire family on a motorcycle. You can also sleep on motorcycles. I did not know that you could do that. Um, I suppose you could ride on top of sugar cane uh, with an ox cart, and uh, they know how to get back so you can sleep on the way back. That would work. And um, little trucks are very handy and useful to transport just about anything, um, including people. Probably the most popular way to get around is in an auto rickshaw, and they just jam the people in there. And I took a picture here, and I don't know if you'll be able to see this. See that foot right there? The, uh, the one on the left uh, is disabled, and so the one on the right is pushing the one on the left, and he's doing it with his foot. That would be the truest way of saying a tow truck, uh, as he pushed him out of the way. So a rickshaw uh, can be used, and uh, you could take a bus. If you live in the major cities, they got loads of buses. Not so if you live in the village. You have to walk many miles to get to a main road to do that. I suppose you could take train as well. I would uh, recommend sitting on the inside of a train if you can get in there. And so for those in the village, especially pastors, uh, bikes are the key. And uh, that's how they get around. That is the best means of transportation. So I thought about selling our two bikes. And I thought that maybe if I sold our two bikes, we could buy four bikes. Two bikes would be enough to be able to purchase four bikes for the pastors in India. So I asked one ministry leader how many bikes he wanted and needed, and he said 14. And I thought, oh, no, I I can't do 14. Um, But I presented the need to churches and on Facebook, and, well, the Lord provided 14 bikes uh, for this particular group of men, one of which was used for uh, the orphanage, uh, which is a girl's bike. They needed that as well. And I'm sorry that's a little blurry, or you could read what... Wait a second, you can't read that anyway, so it doesn't matter if it's blurry or not, but we made the paper uh, with these bikes, so that was kind of cool. So, since I had 14 bikes for this ministry, maybe I'll check with another ministry. And I said, well, how many bikes do you need? He said, I need 12. And I thought, oh, no, I can't produce 12 bikes. Um, Well, turned out he got 15. And uh, on the way to the village, we were going to dedicate a pastor and his bike. Uh, However, he said, no, no, all 14 are going to be there. And sure enough, they were. And um, they all got their bikes. And I asked the ministry leader if these bikes were replacing other bikes. And he said, no, most of the guys don't have bikes. They've never had a bike. And I thought, oh, my, how can they minister without having a bike? You can't hear that, but they're all playing their little... uh, 
their little bell there on, the, on their bikes. And uh, they were just thrilled to be able to receive the bike. This house in the background is the pastor's house, no door. Um, and he was thrilled to get a bike as well. So, um, <clears throat> well, that's the video of the guys. The, the orphanage received the girl's bike. Uh, interesting, this, this is from the other group. And I, I want to see if you can recognize something that's happening here that's, that shouldn't be happening. So see if you, can, uh, if you can pinpoint it. These guys did not know they were getting a bike. And um, one more guy, no, 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 not those two. One more guy is going to come in from, okay. You'll notice they're not riding the bikes. Did you notice that? They don't know how to ride the bikes. No, that's not true. No, no, I, I got a picture of them all riding the bikes. But it was just kind of interesting when I saw that video that they weren't riding it. But this girl sure knew how to ride the bike. And uh, at the orphanage, uh, she was right on target with the bike riding. And, uh, and the kids had a lot of fun laughing and, and about that. So um, all told, uh, the Lord provided 34 bikes. Um, and it was all him. You know, it wasn't me at all. I just come on, I put it on Facebook. And uh, some friends from California said, this is a great idea. You know, can we give? And I said, well, okay. Um, and here's, uh, here's how the Lord provided. Um, I've yet to sell our two bikes. So just think how many more bikes I'll have when I finally sell our two bikes. If you're interested, see me afterwards. So uh, that's the story of the bikes over in India. When we were in El Paso... Uh, this past week, uh, flying back from Las Cruces, um, I came across a, a guy that, uh, that I had seen on TV, and uh, I had what, what you would call a brush with greatness. Uh, he's the uh, center for the uh, New Mexico State University basketball team. Anytime I find somebody taller or bigger than me, I want their picture, uh, just to make me look short. Now you're saying, okay, there's a brush with greatness. Have you had any others? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm standing aside of President Reagan there, and uh, there I am with Babe Ruth, and uh, finally with Abe Lincoln. Um, these are all brushes with greatness that I've had. I've got to tell you my, my Abe Lincoln story, though. I, I do have a connection with Abe. Maybe I told you this before. When we were going to camp at Mizbah Grove, for you old-timers, you remember Mizbah, there was a speaker that got up, and uh, I was just a lad in the mid-60s, early 60s, and he got up and he said that he shook a man's hand who shook Abraham Lincoln's hand. And he made an offer to us. If you come forward and shake my hand, you can say you shook a man's hand who shook a man's hand who shook Abraham Lincoln's hand. That is, out of all the years I went to Mr. Grove and all the sermons I heard and all the children's programs I heard, that is the only thing I remember. <laughs> and I went right up to that guy and shook that guy's hand. And tonight, for a gift of $10 or more, you shake my hand, and you can say you shook a man's hand, a very nice-looking man's hand, a man's, uh, man who has a beard, a very attractive man who shook a man's hand, who shook a man's hand, who shook Abraham Lincoln's hand, and then you have a brush with greatness as well. Um, okay, maybe not, but uh, at any rate, a brush with greatness is when you find yourself near a celebrity, a sports figure, a politician, someone larger than life. And um, I'm sure if we had time, you could tell your stories of all your brushes with greatness, and, uh, but we don't, and probably it's good that we don't. But what if you were to have a brush with the greatest? I'm talking about God. A brush with the greatest. And someday, uh, we will have that opportunity, if we know Christ is our personal Savior, when we see God face to face. However, I need to tell you that you have had a brush 
with the greatest. But before I mention that, let me just uh, suggest there were some sermon notes that were handed out. And uh, if you'd like to keep score, that's available to you. On the inside is an article I wrote when I was on India, in India. On the flip side, on the back side, is uh, a little information about our ministries, and you're welcome to read through that. When you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and when you responded to that good news of Jesus Christ and received the gift of eternal life, you had a brush with the greatest of all time, because that's when you met Jesus Christ. I don't care how old or young you are, my granddaughter, Sydney, already accepted the Lord. That's terrific. She had that, and, and the same would be with you as well. Well, and there was a guy by the name of Phil who had a brush with greatness, and I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we look at Phil and his brush with the greatest. John begins his gospel account by identifying who Jesus Christ was and is. Uh, verses 1 through 18, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, Jesus Christ, was and is God. And then he tells about John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, uh, verses 19 through 34. And thirdly, in this chapter, he begins identifying those that Jesus would call to become disciples, starting at verse 35. Concerning those disciples, the first two um, are mentioned here. Well, not technically. One is mentioned, two of them were identified, but only one is actually mentioned. These two disciples were ones who were following John the Baptist, and they are now going to come to Jesus Christ and to follow him, and the author of John doesn't identify the second person, and of course you know why. It's John. John's the one, most likely, is, is the second one that's not identified. Oftentimes he would not identify himself, um, or he would do it in a third person type of fashion. But uh, So we believe that these two disciples, one would have been Andrew, who's mentioned here, and Andrew then goes to Peter, and, um, and he invites Peter to come to, to meet Christ. The next person that is mentioned in verse 43 is Phil, short for Philip. Phil was from Bethsaida, a fishing village on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, and the hometown of several other disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all fishermen. For some reason, unbeknownst to us, he's headed to Galilee, and in the process, he runs into Jesus. No indication is mentioned as to how this initial encounter took place. Jesus wasn't publicly preaching yet, we don't believe, so uh, no chance meeting by hearing him preaching. Maybe they bumped into him, um, maybe they bumped into each other in the marketplace, perhaps they were at the same watering hole or campfire or inn. Could it be that one of them joined the other while they were walking to Canaan of Galilee where, where Jesus will perform his first miracle, changing water into wine, John chapter 2? Might John, Peter, or Andrew have been involved with the introduction? Uh, we just don't know. All that is recorded is that Jesus found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Follow me. The calling card I'm suggesting of Jesus. Follow me. Jesus often <coughs> used that term, uh, inviting people to come to him. This was his way of doing it. While walking along the Sea of Galilee, he approached two brothers, brothers Peter and Andrew, and he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Wait a second, you're saying. Andrew's already mentioned in John chapter 1, he brings Peter to Jesus. Yeah, uh, that was kind of the first calling of them. Most likely the sea experience would have been the, the second or the final or the official call. And, of course, they dropped their nets. They left their nets and they followed him. 
Matthew, a tax collector, was sitting at the tax booth doing what tax collectors do, collecting money, counting their money. Jesus came up to him. He challenged him. He said, follow me. And he stopped doing all of that counting. He stopped being a tax guy. In fact, he invited his former colleagues to join him as he followed Christ. Even non-disciples, at least not part of the official 12, were called to follow me. Jesus said, if any would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To one rather self-righteous, rich young man who believed that he kept the law but was wondering what still he lacked, Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, if you would be perfect, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. Matthew 19, 21. And the same message is given to us as well. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to go to the Father, you have to go through Jesus Christ, which means you have to follow him. Philip didn't know all of that to this point. He would eventually, as he traversed the Holy Lands with Jesus for three years, and after the resurrection of Christ, all of these truths and much, much more would at last become crystal clear to him. At this point, Philip has met Jesus, and he's going to follow him. So what's Philip's calling card? Well, let me get to that in a minute. But what did Philip know about Jesus? Let's read these verses here, starting at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or no guile, as the King James says. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see much greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what did Philip know? Well, <clears throat> this is it. Verse 45, we have found him of whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This short encounter was enough for Philip to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one predicted by Moses and the apostles. One might not think that is enough, but uh, my guess is that whenever Jesus walked into a room or into a crowd or among any type of people, all of a sudden they knew there was a presence among them. Uh, in fact, you may have recognized this with leaders, real strong leaders, uh, maybe they're world leaders or they're, or they're leaders of industry or something, but uh, the minute they walk into the room, everybody is silent, they're, their attention is drawn to them. Brush with greatness almost. Well, you can imagine what it would be like to have the actual Son of God walking among your midst. Anybody could believe or should believe that indeed he was the Son of God. Not sure what Jesus said to Phil during uh, this brush with the greatest, but it was enough for Phil to be convinced that he had discovered the Messiah. And since his friend Nate 
called Nathaniel and then later Bartholomew, was also looking for this one, the Messiah, or at the very least had studied about the prophesied one, Phil needed to tell him. It's obvious, however, that there's a lot that he did not know about Christ. In fact, his naivete or his rudimentary understanding of who Jesus is is noted in in his response to Nate. He identified him by the town he grew up in first. He called He called the Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. My hometown uh, is hard for me to actually pinpoint. Uh, My dad was a pastor in the Bible Fellowship Church, a colleague to Leroy Heller back many years ago. And um, back then, you tended to move a lot. Uh, And so although I was born in the hospital in Quakertown, because my mom was from the Quakertown Church, Uh, We lived at Finesville at the time, and then Jersey City, and then Philadelphia, and then York, then Hatfield. I don't know where my hometown is. I would be happy to make Lebanon my hometown, but you'll need to pay me, okay? So I'm making that offer to various churches that I go to. I made it to Carmel this morning up in New York, and uh, we can work out a deal. You know, don't be upset. Uh, We'll come up with something. Um, Having a hometown is one thing, and and having a place that that you can call your own as well. And um, this was a true statement. Jesus was from Nazareth. After the threat of the killing, the Christ child was over. Joseph took Mary and Jesus and returned to Nazareth. So Jesus then grew up in this small Galilean village. He was from Nazareth. And this was a typical way of identifying a person by naming their town. As most of you know, I pastored at our effort at church. We were there for 23 and a half years. I suppose they could have said, Dan from Ephrata. Um, and that would be a way to identify me. The problem is there may have been other Dan's from Ephrata, so we'll need to add something to that, and we will. Um, <clears throat> even the Apostle Peter identified Jesus as being from Nazareth, and on two occasions, and so did the Apostle Paul. However, true this is, Nazareth was not Jesus' birth town. And you know that. You are scholars. The the prophecy was clear that the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judea. Any Jesus born anywhere else could not be the Messiah. So was Jesus really from Nazareth? Yeah. But he was more likely and, and most definitely from Bethlehem because that was his birth town. Could that be why Nate says when he hears about this one who has come from Nazareth? Could it be that Nate says, Nazareth? Can anything good come at, from Nazareth? Now the commentaries, all the commentators all say, well, that's because he felt Nazareth was a hick town and uh, you know, maybe there was some prejudice going on. Maybe so. Then again, maybe Nate knew that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. I don't know that he knew that. We know that. And so here's just a little miscue. It's not a mistake uh, because others have used it, but he identifies Jesus from the town in which he grew up in, not his birth town. Secondly, Philip identifies the Messiah with his earthly father, the son of Joseph. This was another popular way of distinguishing a person since they did not have surnames. Jews at this time would use their father's name. For me, it would be Daniel Ben Russell, Daniel son of Russell. And, uh, and that would work, especially if you said, ah, that's Daniel, son of Russia, of Russia, Rus- Russell, from Ephrata. There you go, not from Russia, but uh, from Russell of Ephrata. That would be a way of identifying me, and that would be the way others would identify as well. By, but biologically, 
Jesus was not from Joseph. You know that. Now, I mentioned this over in India when I was teaching this to the fellows over there, and one guy got pretty upset, uh, and either I did not explain it correctly, or my translator didn't explain it correctly. We'll go with the translator. Um, But he was upset about this. Yes, he's Joseph's son. I know, he is. He's related. Joseph was betrothed to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and both Joseph and Mary were from the line of David, but Mary was a virgin when she conceived. And according to the angel Gabriel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Thus Jesus was not from the loins of Joseph, you know that. He was the son of God, the son of David. Speaking from a cloud during the transfiguration, God said, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So he identified Jesus as being from Joseph, and that's okay. Little little mistake, not exactly accurate as we would like it. And then there's one more inaccuracy, and again, it's another one that's not that big, but we got to mention it. Phil makes the statement that we have found him. Not sure who the we is. Could be his friends Peter and Andrew, perhaps even John. But that's not the crux of the problem. Notice verse 43. Did he find Jesus, or did Jesus find him? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Sounds pretty clear that Jesus found him. Neither from an experimental way or a technical point did he, or for that matter, did, did he or anyone find the Messiah. Even if he were brought to him, as in the case of Nate, Jesus is still the one finding them. And he continues to be the one to find us and all others. On several occasions, Jesus said, No man, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He also said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Seems a bit like splitting theological hairs, but let's let's get off on the right foot. We often claim that we found Christ, or, or we found faith. Professor and author Gerald Borchett called this a self-centered view of salvation. He further notes, it was not Jesus who was lost. Well, that's a tad tacky, I think. Uh, But I hope you get the point. In reality, salvation is of God. He uses humans to present the good news of, of Jesus, but he does the drawing, he does the calling, he does the saving, and so much more. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, nothing is more glorious than the doctrine of the rebirth, and this is obviously the work of God in us through the Spirit. We do not give birth to ourselves. We We are not reborn because we believe. We believe because we are reborn. This does not, however, diminish our role as soul winners one iota. We are to follow the example of both Philip and Andrew, and we are to bring people to Jesus. We are the human agents that God uses. It's just encouraging to know that behind the scenes, God is the one who's doing the working, and he's the one that's going to draw them to him. We're just the human agents that he uses. Despite these minor miscues born out of such a short time with Jesus, God used Philip to bring his friend Nate to the Lord. Why mention the miscues? Well, out of Philip's ignorance, God still brought Nate to himself. We quite often are ignorant in our witnessing, but But God can use us. One of the greatest fears that people have when it comes to witnessing is that we don't know enough. We don't know as much as the pastor knows. Uh, We don't know as much as theologians know, and therefore we're not going to open our mouth. We're not going to say anything because we're afraid we might not give them the right information. Well, in some ways that's a good thing, but not when it comes to witnessing. 
Not when it comes to witnessing. God can use what we have to offer to him. He used Phil to bring Nate. And Phil didn't know a whole lot about him. He said, we just met this guy, and and he's the one that that the prophets foretold, that Moses and the prophets foretold. Come and see him. And then he gave a couple things that may not have been exactly correct. The 19th century English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon noted that we often witness out of ignorance that our testimonies, quote, are all imperfect, full of exaggeration of one truth and misapprehensions of another, end quote. Fortunately, God still uses us. He forgives our mistakes and blesses our, our ministries, never allowing his word to return void. In his sermon, Nathaniel and the Fig Tree, Spurgeon was quick to add, we must try to avoid mistakes lest we cause needless prejudice. We should so state the gospel that if men are offended by it, it shall be the gospel which offends them and not our way of putting it, end quote. So don't let your ignorance or your naivete be an excuse for not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to learn how to do that, and you must do that, and you should do that, but don't use that as an excuse. That's not going to hold up with God when you get to heaven. He says, why didn't you witness? Oh, I didn't know what to say doesn't work. I don't think that works. So what was Phil's calling card? Let's go back to that. And he simply said, come and see. The best Phil could do was to follow the lead of his friend, Andrew, who introduced his brother, Peter, to Jesus and say to Nate's objections, come and see. And that was enough to convince Nate to follow Phil and come to Jesus. Why? Because Nate was Phil's friend. Friend to friend, and he was willing to listen to him and follow him. Basically, when we are witnessing to a lost soul, that is what we are saying. Come and see. Come and see for yourself the claims of Jesus Christ. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Isaiah mentioned the same thing. Paul mentioned the same thing. The writer of Hebrews mentions about the same thing. You seek him, you will find him. So this leads us then to our calling card, and I believe that's on the inside of the sermon notes if you're, if you're following along. Several things to note about our calling card. First of all, our card necessitates going to our friends and making friends. With our calling card, we need to do the same thing that Phil and Andrew did. We've got to go tell our friends, relatives, coworkers, classmates. Incidentally, that is the number one method of evangelism. One person who has a brush with the greatest a spiritual life-altering experience telling another person, often a friend or a relative, about the one Jesus Christ. There are other methods that work and that have had a lot of success. Bibles placed in hotel rooms and opened by a weary and lonely traveler. Tracts explaining the good news handed out from one person to another or picked up, often in the most unusual places. An evangelist proclaiming the truth via the media or in a great crusade. A local pastor visiting a dying man or woman in the hospital. Or a website like 800followme.com. That would work. Uh, Where the gospel is presented, that's my website. All and many more tactics are used to introduce people to Jesus, but in most cases, and even in some of those that I mentioned, it's a friend who is burdened about their lost friend and invites them to come and meet Jesus. Might Philip have had the same success going to a complete stranger and telling him about whom he met? Perhaps, perhaps not. He was going to have success with his friend, Nate, because they were friends. 
There's an openness and a trust which has been cultivated by years of interaction. A friend has earned the right to be heard and taken seriously. And that was enough, despite Nate's initial reservation to go and to meet Jesus. The success of friend-to-friend witnessing is noted in a statistic that, although a bit dated according to its author, Elmer Towns, in a recent correspondence uh, with my son Josh and, and then to me, probably stands the test of time. When researchers asked new converts what was the major influence in leading you to Christ and the church, a small percentage mentioned church advertising, the pastor, or organized evangelism programs. But a whopping number, percent, came to know Jesus Christ because of friends and relatives. 86%. That is amazing, but that's what the statistics tell us. An overwhelming majority point to the influence of their family and friends. A lot of money goes into these other methods to share the good news, and rightfully so. But maybe a greater emphasis should be on teaching us how to go to our friends and share the good news with them. That's kind of what we're working on with 800 Follow Me Right Now, a church evangelism program that will do that very thing, teaching us how we can share our faith. And you're thinking, uh, uh, don't saddle me with, uh, with guilt from a divine obligation that's abrogated. You don't mean to do that, do you, Dan? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean to do. Uh, those friends are placed there by God in your life. And I believe they could very well be divine appointments that you need to be talking to. In some quarters, this is called friendship evangelism or lifestyle or relationship evangelism. I call it friend to friend. And it's simply sharing your faith with people God has purposely placed in your life. Over a Sunday lunch of soup and salad, the host has asked me to explain friendship evangelism. That caught me off guard. In the opening remarks before my sermon, I had mentioned the evangelism ministry in which I'm involved, 800followme.com, and our desire to put together an evangelism program for the churches that would not only teach evangelism, but get the entire church involved in friendship evangelism, friend-to-friend evangelism. I don't remember what my exact response to her was, but, but I, I think I dodged the question. I moved quickly to explain the program to her. God has placed us here on planet Earth at this time, to worship him, and in the process to help in this advancement of the kingdom of God. If that was not our purpose, God could take us to heaven right after we accepted him. Fact of the matter is, your pastor could be that person as he baptizes you, just holds you under a little bit longer, and then you go home and be with Jesus. That would be wonderful. You could worship him for all eternity up there. That's not his plan. His plan is to keep us here. He says, as you are going, make disciples. Our calling card necessitates going to our friends. Secondly, our calling card requires living the life of a Christian. We don't make friends with non-believers just so that we can boast of having non-believing friends. It's true that many believers, and my hand is raised on this one, have so cloistered themselves that the only friends they have are part of the kingdom. So actually befriending a non-believer could be boastful material, uh, or it could just be that you're a nice guy or gal and you have lots of friends, saved and unsaved. But that's not the purpose. Jesus said, follow me. And he was obviously living a life pleasing to God that would draw people to himself. You've heard the quote, you may be the only Jesus they see. I don't know if that's good or not, but... True, you may be the only Christian they ever see. 
God may have purposely placed them in your life at just this time so that they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm a firm believer that God is the one who saves, and all those who are going to be saved will be saved. But as noted before, this does not diminish our role or relieve us from our evangelistic duties. We have been commanded to do so. We need to live the life, walk the walk. But we cannot stop there. We cannot stop by just being a light, hoping that non-believers then will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ just by looking at our stellar Christian lifestyle. They'll desire it and ask us how they can have it. There's another very important step that is needed in our calling card demands that we present the gospel, that we talk the talk. That's the talk the talk of the walk the walk. It is evangelism that we need to do. Is evangelism Evangelism, if there's no words, uh, can it really be evangelism if there's no words? That's the question that Scott McKnight asked in his blog, Jesus Creed. He was quick to cite what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? There's a verbalization that needs to take place during, uh, along with the life of witnessing. McKnight notes that the um, in irredactable form of evangelism is to declare the story of Jesus. All other dimensions gain their only clarity once the declaration is clear. My hostess friend wrote, certainly I'm ready and willing to share my testimony with any friend who asks me. The problem is no one is asking. It just may take more time for people to see a difference in our lives and wonder why. Yeah, it may take more time or it may never happen. Because she wasn't willing at that point to share. You've got to talk. You've got to become intentional with your witnessing. You need to share and tell them the good news. She wrote, so what is the next step after you make friends? Well, the next step is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our calling card necessitates going to friends and requires living the Christian life, demands we present the gospel, and, and is motivated, at least in part, by our friend's lostness. Not sure that that's a word, but I'm using it anyway. The driving force should be the realization that our unbelieving friend, if they die in this condition, will spend eternity separated from God. They'll die and they'll go to hell. It's been said that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. I don't think that's verifiable. But he did talk about hell as being a real place. I have come that they may have life, he said. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, should be driven by the fact that our loved ones and our friends who do not know Christ will spend a Christless eternity. If we do not take the responsibility, oh yes, but somebody else might, okay, somebody else might, but you're the guy. You're the gal. You're there. That's your responsibility. Spurgeon wrote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Wow, that's tough. That's the way we need to look at this. I don't think we should cushion the mandate by refraining from being so stark on this point. Spurgeon's high view of God's sovereignty did not diminish his shock treatment in trying to convince people that they needed to share their faith. Perhaps 
we need that shock treatment to wake us up. So if you were to list your friends, those that are going to heaven in this column, those you're not sure about in this column, and those you're pretty positive they're not, would that not be an awakening moment for you? That maybe you need to be talking to the people in this column and the people in this column. Anytime deaths occur, as your pastors know, we get an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so was the case in New Mexico as we had a memorial service. And the purpose of that service was, was kind of twofold. One, to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ as we honored our son, Josh. And secondly, to present the gospel. That was so huge in, in my thinking, in our family's thinking. And we knew that's what Josh would want too. Present the gospel. There's going to be people that are going to be unsaved there. And to my right, sitting back here, were the fellow deputies of my son, Jay, who's in the uh, Donna County Sheriff's Department. And they were dressed in uniform, and there was other detectives that were not dressed, but they were all sitting over here. And to my left were the people that Shelley worked with at Wells Fargo. Most of these people have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So at a funeral, we get the opportunity to share that. We not only had 400 people that were listening to, to us there in, in the service, um, but online, there was uh, 220 that stuck with it the whole time. About 750, I think, have, have viewed it since then or during that time. And, and one particular person who Josh and Shelley had been praying for for a number of years prayed to receive Christ as their personal Savior. Was that worth it? Yeah, it was. In fact, even Shelley said that. If one person accepts the Lord, and the very person that they were praying for did, Our calling card is simply, come and see. That's what we need to tell people. Come and see. Just like Philip and Andrew and hundreds of thousands of others, we just need to bring people to Jesus. I've written a book now on this evangelism, personal evangelism, and it's at the editors, and we're hoping uh, that it will help us, it will help you to be able to simply share your faith with others. Well, you probably didn't hear anything new in this sermon. It's all been told to you before. And okay, maybe you did hear, you did not know that, uh, that Babe Ruth and I were tight. Uh, that, that may be new to you. But the rest of the stuff is old hat. Yet it's probably true that the, what the researchers say, that 95% of all Christians will never share their faith. 95%. Isn't that stunning? of a figure, and I don't know if that's true or not, but what a tragedy. These 95% of the Christians, 100% of them, had a brush with the greatest, and, and yet they're, they're keeping it to themselves. Folks, we've been given the distinct privilege with our friends, our relatives, our co-workers, and others to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. That responsibility, that privilege, and that responsibility falls on us not on the pastors. It falls on us individually. And we start like Phil with the desire to bring our friends to meet Christ by, by sharing the gospel. And maybe we're not, we can't preach a sermon to them. We can study up on it, and we should, so that we're ready to go. We're prepared in season and out of season. But, but my guess is that these friends and relatives have not had a brush with the greatest. And you need to be the one to take that responsibility. In the inside of your sermon notes, I think I put a line there for you to write down the name of somebody. And I would encourage you to think and pray about that and say, Lord, 
Who is it should I be praying for? Who is it that I should be going to? And then get ready to share, to share the greatest story ever told about the greatest offer ever made by the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for my friends here at Lebanon, ones dearly loved by us. And we appreciate the ministry here of the pastors and the wives and the elders. And and this church is on the go, and uh, we give you praise for that. And yet there's many of us who can think of friends and relatives and co-workers and and others uh, that really need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and we haven't shared it with them. For whatever reason, we've held back. Now, Lord, I'm depending on your Holy Spirit to be the one to work in their lives. I've presented what I think is the truth, and we trust that you will speak to them and each one of us and help us to be prepared to share our faith and then be willing to do so. And as a result, we're going to see many people have a brush with the greatest of all. What a wonderful thing that is. There's rejoicing in heaven when that takes place. There's rejoicing as Christians as well. So minister to our hearts, speak to us. And Lord, if somebody has come here tonight and they don't know for sure that if they died, they'd go to heaven, I pray that you will speak to them in a direct way, help them to understand what the gospel is, that Jesus came into this world to die on the cross for their sins. He cemented the whole thing by rising again on the third day. And by faith, we receive him, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. And he gives to us the gift of eternal life. May that be the case tonight for any person who is here. Continue to speak to us and bless this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dan, for being with us. Also, Vani is here as well, Pastor's wife. Uh, I know that uh, many, many of you, because you've expressed great concern, for your family, and I uh, know it's been a very difficult time for them with uh, Josh's death, but uh, we are thankful for God's grace. Uh, remember that the memorial service here is going to be held on the 21st, correct? Yes, at the uh, Church of the Nazarene in Ephraim. Ephraim was too small. Right. <coughs> so uh, we announced that this morning, and those uh, details are in the bulletin. You can look at it, and uh, our brother Dan's going to be speaking at that service as well. No. Not this one. But uh, pray for the word of God that's going to be going forth. I know it's their desire that many would come to faith. Thank you for being here tonight. You're dismissed.